Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be the first time on the show that we are going to be looking at films of the silent era. Rob and I were talking about this, and we think maybe this will be a, a recurring episode type where we look at a couple of short films from the silent era, because most films of this time are, are not very long. They maybe would be hard to talk about for an entire episode on their own. So, so we're doing a double feature today. Yeah. Boy, there, there are, already there's a lot to unpack, though, because, yes, it's true. There are a lot of short, silent films, but there are also a fair number. When I was looking around at possibilities for today, some of them are longer than you'd expect them to be. And add oh, yeah. to that that they are also silent films, uh, which if, you know, unless you're dealing with very certain uh, high standard uh, silent films, you know, true classics of the time period, um Fritz it could Long. feel a lot longer than it actually is, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was thinking about this before we got started. I was thinking about that quote from Videodrome where Professor Brian Oblivion is talking about television. And he says, the television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, television is reality, and reality is less than television. Now, that's uh, turned up a little bit past the the 10 marker to, to get it into the weirdness of Cronenberg territory. But essentially, there's a nugget of truth in that. And what I mean by that is that um, the, the films of the silent era have generally not yet breached the raw experience threshold. They're works of art that have to be appreciated across a kind of mental distance and with effortful dedication of attention, more like a painting or a work of fiction in text, like reading a book. You know, it takes a certain amount of sustained, effortful attention to read a story. Uh, but at a certain level of development, the techniques used in film and television, especially once you introduce synchronized sound and like really good film editing techniques and good acting and all that. At a certain point, they become so well honed that no effortful dedication of attention is required and no distance must be crossed. Like the films of today are generally automatically engrossing, even if they're not good. As soon as you're aware of them, they're simply happening in your mind. Yeah, that's a great point. So it's, it's in, in a way interacting with a silent film or even a, a challenging piece of stationary art. It's it's like one of those scenes in, in Cronenberg's Scanners where you're staring intently at another thing uh, and your, mm. your, your brain is beginning to like boil and swell in your head as you concentrate and force yourself to merge uh, your your consciousness with the art before you. Yeah, totally. And so while I would say I, I really enjoy a lot of silent films, but for me, they are they are not as easy, not as automatic, not as magical as the films of the modern era that are automatically engrossing like that. They're more like the way I have to appreciate written fiction as text, you know, uh, yeah. that there's something that can be very rewarding to pay close attention to, but it takes work. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you mention films of the modern era, it is worth noting just how quickly the technology and the craft evolved. Because yeah. um, I, I think both of our films that we're going to focus on at length today are from the 1920s. And and as an, as a, an experiment, I looked at uh, the year 1925, and there's a silent film titled The Lost World from that year, based on the, the story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, with dinosaurs in it. So, of course, it has pioneering stop-motion dino animation in it that looks really cool, but it is still a silent film. There's still all these barriers uh, to being able to properly immerse yourself in it. You fast forward just one decade and you have 1935. That's the year Mad Love came out, which, mm-hmm. dis- you know, despite very much being an older film, um, you know, you can you can watch it and you become immersed in it and you you're you're feeling the characters and you feel like you're a part of this world. And it it, so it illustrates just how f- Far it came in those 10 years, you know, just how much the craft and the technology changed, uh, enabling you to tell different types of stories uh, and bring the viewer closer, you know, truly creating this videodrome uh, um, uh, situation that you described earlier. Yeah, and I would say there are a couple of things there. I mean, I would say, like you're pointing out, one of the main technological differences is synchronized sound. I mean, that that's a game changer on its own. But on top of that, I'd say with Mad Love, you have a really exceptional example from its era as well. Yeah. Uh, the exceptional photographic techniques of, of Carl Freund, uh, you know, behind the camera, you've got the the exceptional charisma of the actors on screen, of course, the incomparable Peter Lorre, then you have the the hyper nervous energy of Colin Clive in it. Uh, and and so so all of that is true. But yeah, as time goes on, it's funny how much the techniques just like get developed and become sort of self-referencing and and uh and industrial automatic clichés where where even the bad movies of today are typically very engrossing automatically like if one's playing in the room you so easily just start watching it and then it's just in your brain yeah well, and and it is worth worth note. You mentioned Carl Freund, the uh, the director of Mad Love. He, of course, was cinematographer on 1927's silent masterpiece Metropolis. So, the 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 great work that would come with the talkies. I mean, it very mm-hmm. much emerges from the silent era. Like the silent era is is the period in which like the tools were coming online. The the sort of substructure of our cinematic legacy was being built. That's a very good point. And I would say for me, Metropolis is probably the most engrossing silent film I've ever seen. Yeah, that's one of the all-time greats. So we have to mention Nosferatu, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, oh, yeah. uh, A Trip to the Moon. And I believe we, we talked about A Trip to the Moon a little bit in our invention series on filmmaking and photography, um, where we, we, we discussed more of the, the technological side of mm. the silent film era. Oh, that's a very good point. If you want to get some background before the rest of this episode, you could pause here, go listen to our entire series on the Invention podcast uh, that we did. About, I think we did one that started with the history of photography, beginning with the camera. Oh, right? I think we even, started with the camera obscura. Even. Yeah, 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 even going back to there, but then then going into photography and then going into motion pictures. And so if you want more uh, context, probably a lot of things that at this point I don't even remember that we talked about. So yeah. I may have lost some really good context. So, so if you want, go listen to that and then come back and listen to the rest of this. Um, but so today we are going to be talking about a couple of silent films. I think, are they both from the early 20s? Mine's from 1922. Is yours from 21? Um, it is indeed from 1921. Yes. Okay. 
However, we are not doing any of the classics we discussed earlier. I think both of these are are harder to come by. They're maybe more obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think they're both very fun choices. And in a way, they're choices that circumvent your expectations of the silent era, unless you, of course, are already just versed in the silent era and, you know, mm-hmm. know a lot of the, the history and the culture of what was going on at the time. Yeah. All right, Joe, do you want to you go first and roll right into your selection? Sure, I'll go first. The film I selected for this episode is an early animated film by a German filmmaker named Lotta Reiniger, and it is the 1922 short film Cinderella. The German title is Aschenputtel. Now, my main source of biographical information about Reiniger comes from the 2019 New York Times retrospective by Devi Lockwood, which is part of a series called Overlooked, which seems to be sort of post hoc obituaries for remarkable people who originally didn't get obituaries in the Times when they passed away. Uh, So Lotta Reiniger was born Charlotte Reiniger. I think Lotta is a German shortening of the name Charlotte. Uh, She was born on June 2nd, 1899 to Carl and Eleanor Reiniger and lived in Berlin. And when she was in school, she learned about something called Scherenschnitte, which means scissor cuts in German. And this was similar to a Chinese art form that dated back hundreds of years, but it had become popular in German art at the time, I think in Swiss art too. And Essentially, it consisted of making art by cutting silhouette images out of paper with fine shears. But Lotta Reiniger enjoyed this art form when she was young, cutting out silhouettes of people she knew, uh, not just to mount them on the wall or press them in an album, but she would make them move and act out scenes in a homemade shadow theater to do uh, scenes from the plays of Shakespeare. And as she got older, she became interested in the, at this point, blossoming art form of film, uh, originally thinking of becoming an actress, but she soon discovered the possibilities of animation as an art form that's unique to film. And of course, uh, this would have been still during the silent era. And she ended up studying at the Max Reinhardt School of Acting under the German filmmaker Paul Wegner, where she showed off her talent for silhouette cutting, cutting out these figures in paper. And then to read from uh, Devi Lockwood's article, quote, Wegner soon enlisted her to help with his 1918 film, The Pied Piper of Hamelin, an adaptation of the folk legend about a man who's hired to play his magic flute to lure away rats from a German town. When the town refuses to pay him for his services, the piper plays another tune to hypnotize the children and lead them out of the town, never to be seen again. Wegner had Reiniger help him animate wooden puppet rats for the film. And after this, she had the bug. She wanted to make films for a living. So she later met and married an art historian named Carl Koch, who she would collaborate with on a number of her films. And her career would go on at this point to span 60 years, including over 70 films animated by this silhouette cutout technique, where she would she would cut figures out of paper with scissors and then film them moving on a transparent surface to to create the action that you see on the screen. Now, Paul uh, Wegener, uh, who you mentioned earlier, for, for anyone out there who's just w- wondering who, who that is, um, he was one of the directors and writers on the 1915 film The Golem. Uh, you've probably seen images of this, the, the clay um, golem uh, figure in black and white, very haunting. And he mm. also played the golem. Yes, that, that is correct. 
1919, Lotta Reiniger and Carl Koch uh, together created a silhouette animated short film called The Ornament of the Heart in Love, which is, uh, in, in the words of Debbie Lockwood here, about two lovers, both ballet dancers, and a morphing ornament between them that represents their emotions. Now, what, one thing I really love about that description is that if, that description sounds like you could easily describe a current or upcoming Pixar short. You know, so, um, an area of, of animation, of mainstream animation, where we often think of, like, this is where the really inventive ideas and formats are going to be explored, you know? Um, and we think of it as kind of a, uh, at times we can think of it as, as a place that we can only come to after, uh, you know, a century of, of animation and filmmaking. Uh, but here we are in 1919, and there's just as much ingenuity and creativity in using, uh, you know, different formats to tell a story with visuals. That's a very good point. Yeah. Early on, there was a lot of elasticity about what a film could be. What should be the contents of a film? So while, while today it's more like, what can we break to create something new? Like this is an age where a lot of stuff was unformed. You know, it was the, the amorphous age of, uh, of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so her most famous film is the 1926 silent movie, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which is an adaptation of the Arabic classic 1001 Nights, uh, which was one of the first feature length animated films in history. Uh, and to quote from Lockwood here, describing her, her technological and creative process, quote, Reiniger's editing was meticulous. Starting with more than 250,000 frames, she and her crew used just over 100,000 in the film, which ran for an hour and 21 minutes, each second requiring 24 frames. It took three years to complete and premiered in Volksbühn, uh, or People's Theater in Berlin, when Reiniger was 27. The film showcased the fantastical potential of animation. A prince defeated an army of demons to win over a princess. Birds battled witches and sorcerers. Horses flew. The French film director Jean Renoir saw Prince Ahmed on its opening night in Paris and later recalled that he wanted to tell her, You have fairy hands. <laughs> Reiniger designed a complex process to make her films. She cut each limb of each figure out of black cardboard and thin lead, then joined them together with wire hinges. For research, she spent hours at the Zoo Berlin watching how the animals moved. And uh, then I was reading later in this article that she also pioneered new technology for creating animated films, including a device called a trick tish or trick table. And this involved a camera that would be hanging in the air, facing down onto a table made of layers of glass, which would form the stage for the silhouette cutouts to play upon. And then you would have a bright light underneath that would cause the wire hinges used at the joints of these figures to disappear. And it was basically stop motion animation. They would, they would take a photo of a scene that she had set out and then she would advance the figures slightly in their movement to, to advance the action and then take a photo again, building the film frame by frame. Now, uh, as with any German filmmaker working in the first half of the 20th century, you, you end up wondering, okay, did they get, did they end up within the Hitler machine, right? Because, of course, uh, Nazi Germany was big on using film as propaganda. So I was reading about this, and it seems like after Hitler came to power, Lada and Karl left Germany and tried to make a life in other countries like France and Italy and England. Apparently, they were politically opposed to Hitler, but they could not get 
uh, visas or they couldn't get the visas they wanted to stay permanently in the other countries they went to. So it seems like they were uh, essentially taking long vacations in other countries where they were working uh, and then having to come back and then leave again. They were eventually forced to move back to Berlin in 1944, apparently to take care of Lada's mother, who was very sick. And I can only find evidence that uh, she worked on one film in this period called The Golden Goose, which I have seen described as a propaganda film, but I can't find much about it, so I don't know. Hmm. But together they moved to England in, in 1948, and she made some children's films for the BBC. And she passed away on June 19th, 1981, at the age of 82. So the film that we're going to be looking at today is from her early period, from 1922, uh, and it is an adaptation of the Cinderella folktale. Uh, I was reading about this in, in Lockwood's article, where apparently the, the Cinderella adaptation was reviewed by the New York Times in 1928, where the author Charles Morgan wrote, The small black shapes laugh at you from a world of their own into which naturalism makes no laborious entry. <laughs> and I really like phrasing it like that, because I, I think this little animated film is wonderful. And, uh, and I see what he meant by that with uh, naturalism makes no laborious entry. Something about the animation style feels so free. Yes, yes. This is a, a beautiful picture. And uh, for, for anybody who wants to see the, the two films that we're discussing here, I'll make sure that I include links to them or embedded versions of them uh, on the blog post that accompanies this episode at samudamusic.com. But, um, the, yeah, the style of this is so divorced from from reality. It just comes out of, it's like, it's, it's a reality that is passed from, from, from fairy tale book to fairy tale book, you know? Um mm. There was a there's a quote that you included in the in in our notes for this episode from A.O. Scott, uh, where he describes, uh, quote, dreamy images that seem to tap right into the collective unconscious that suggest both an antidote to Disney and a precursor to Tim Burton. And it's interesting <laughs> that Scott mentioned Disney here, because in 1922, Disney, Walt Disney, the animator, also put out a Cinderella animated short. But it is very much connected to the real world. Like you see, uh, I, I didn't even watch it in its entirety. I just kind of flipped around and got a sense of it. But uh, like there are scenes of like flapper culture, you know, and stuff like hmm. that. And it like it's very it's 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 hitched to the real world of the time. Whereas, yeah, this one is it seems to exist in art in an artistic uh, unreality that is so much more engrossing. Yeah. So it is the story of Cinderella. The story element is fairly straightforward, but it's the animation that really sings here. It, it is an animation based on these silhouettes, these cutout these paper cutout figure silhouettes and stop motion animation. And as for the plot content, it is decidedly more in the brothers grim direction than the sanitized versions that would come later, like in the, mm -hmm. in the full length animated Cinderella by, by Disney. And so in that version, and so that means that in this version, it is a magic tree instead of a fairy godmother, a creepy yep. magic tree on a hill in a cemetery. Yeah, it's as if nature itself is the force that answers her call as yeah. opposed to, you know, any particular human humanized force. 
Yeah. Uh, you also get that Cinderella's wicked stepsister absolutely does chop off part of her own foot in order to fit into the slipper and get with the prince. Oh, uh, yes. But, but the slipper fills up with blood and it doesn't work. And then there's a really <laughs> funny scene where the other sister tries is she's about to chop off her own foot to fit in the slipper and the prince is just like no no <laughs> yeah this is such a fun silent film like I, when i i told the, my family i'm like hey guys we're gonna sit down and watch a silent film together and the the boy didn't really even know what i meant by that because he didn't have much exposure to silent films my wife was um hesitant but then i'm like don't worry it's uh it's animated and it's it's cinderella and it's really really delightful it, it, it's it's you know has kind of a shadow puppetry a, a look to it and so they're like mm-hmm. okay and we sat down we watched it the, the 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 bits of humor generated laughter from all of us the uh the toe cutting <laughs> made us all uh, scream out loud uh-huh. um you know in a fun way uh because it's you know the style divorces it enough from reality that you're not legitimately horrified but you're like ah don't do that um so it yeah it's just tremendous fun now one choice about this movie that i found very interesting was the choice to include the animation method mm-hmm. as part of the narrative so i don't know rob did the version you watched have title cards or uh or or what language were the title cards in if it did oh well the version i watched um it did have some title cards but i believe they were no they were in english um uh, maybe I just didn't read them. <laughs> um, maybe I was just getting it set up at the time. But for the most part, yeah, it's just a, a visual presentation. And I guess it helps to know the story. Uh, mm-hmm. So a lo- as we watched it, we were kind of taking it apart a little bit. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess she's doing this now. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, this must be instead of a uh, you know fairy godmother, it's this tree. Uh, oh, and now the birds are involved, that sort of thing. Well, I meant the, the intertidal cards, yeah, ah. b- between the action. Well, you know, now that you mention it, though, Joe, the version that I watched with my family was on Vimeo. Okay. And I don't think that one had um, title cards in it. I think yeah, that was just the animation. But I've been playing the YouTube version in the corner of my screen as we record here. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm getting some, um, some uh, dialogue that uh, was not present in the version we screened. Yes. Yeah, so at the beginning of the version, the, there are different versions. Different ones have different uh, title cards, inner titles. And uh, – the version that that I was watching had the English titles that begin, What Cinderella Suffered from the Two Sisters and Her Stepmother, How She Grew into a Fairy Princess, Here is Seen, Told by a Pair of Scissors on a Screen. Hmm. So they're like including the fact that this is made by scissors, and it's in the animation too. Yes. It begins with black silhouettes on a blue background of a small pair of scissors kicking around in the void, almost like a frog paddling in the water. And then a pair of hands comes in and they chase the scissors around, they catch them, and then they use them to cut a figure out of a piece of paper. And that figure will be our heroine, Cinderella, which I thought was a very interesting choice. One totally unrelated side note about the inner titles. If you're watching this with kids, you might want to uh, check the version you're watching first, because one of the inner titles in one of the ones I saw had a word in it that uh, used to have a different connotation. Now it has a, now it is a pejorative term used for women, but uh, it, you, it well, I think it was previously a pejorative term used for women, but with different connotations. Yes, fortunately that was not in the version that I watched <laughs> with my family. Yeah, so um, uh, check which version if you're going to show it to kids. But but I do love the like the visual opening of watching the hands cut out a character with the scissors. It reminds me of some of the differences you see in puppetry, where you know sometimes it's about hiding the fact that it's puppetry, you know, hiding the puppeteer, and mm-hmm. um, and letting the the figures take on a life for themselves. Other times you have very visual 
dual puppeteers. And part of it is about acknowledging the, the role that the puppeteer plays in bringing this to life and and it not mattering that you can see that it is not real. And, and it's in the story, you like you know you're not looking at real people. You're looking at a very a stylized uh, form of, of paper cutting and, uh, and then animation, but uh, that's part of the magic. Yeah, totally. Uh, and it, it's and it's very creepy at the beginning, actually, with the scissors and the figure, because when the hands finish their work, there's this moment where the figure of Cinderella is created, and then she's posed dangling with the scissors attached to her head and splayed open. And it resembles a kind of torture device or something. I, I don't know. Oh, I didn't get that so much. I, th- oh, okay. I thought it was more she was manipulating it with the scissors. So it's just the, yeah, the artist I, and her I guess tools. So. Now I do want to, this is a great place to discuss this though. Um, the creepiness, uh, quote unquote, of this, this short film, mm-hmm. the version that you sent me, uh, had some added music. Music is a whole separate issue in silent film because yeah. sometimes you have specific works that are passed down where we can look at the sheet music and reproduce it. Other mm-hmm. times we don't know what music, if any, was associated with a particular silent film. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times music from that era can sound herky-jerky and kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, of course, always play your own music on top. And there have been numerous cases where someone has composed new music, uh, you know, be it rock or electronic or what have you, for um, classic silent films. So the, the version you initially sent me had some added music. I don't know if it was composed by him for this or someone who just picked a, a track by them, but it has music by Vangelis, yeah. um, the, the composer, of course, probably most famous for uh, his work on Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And I, I love Vangelis, but it's kind of creepy music. And it was kind of ag- leading to a creepy interpretation of what I was seeing. So just a, a minute or two into it, we switched to some more upbeat music to play over it. We played uh, just a channel on Soma FM. Mm-hmm. And it, I found that lighter tone hit almost immediately and was ultimately oh. more fun. But, but the, the music that we choose or is chosen for us with silent films like this, they can have such a huge effect on how we interpret them. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. And it's, it's funny because the animation has both elements. Like the yes. animation is a little bit creepy, but it's also funny. Yes. It's, it's both at the same time. And so you can easily lean more in one direction or the other by adding, you know, the right tone in in the sound. Yeah, because again, it has some laugh out loud moments. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to them here in a minute. So I'm obviously not going to spend a lot of time explaining the implied plot. Uh, like it's Cinderella. You basically know the plot. I, I, I love the cutouts of the Wicked Stepsisters. One is very thin and very tall, and the other one is very short and stout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we see the Wicked Stepsisters being mean. We see the Wicked Stepmother abusing Cinderella. She's like poking her with a cane while Cinderella is cleaning the stairs. And uh, then you get more references to scissors and and cutting intertwined with the plot in the inner titles. So uh, there's an inner title that says uh, "Snip," and we have the king's RSVP. Snip and the magic birds have set her free. Yeah, a lot of fun was ha- is had with the magic birds in this. Oh, you know, I love the magic, magic birds. Magic birds are perfect for this kind of cutout technique. 
Yes. Uh, and so uh, according to the story, Cinderella cannot go to the prince's ball, but she has to help her wicked stepsisters get ready to attend. And this is a good comedic scene. She has to comb their hair and lace their corsets. Uh, for one of their sisters, the the very thin, very tall one, there's a moment <laughs> where you see Cinderella dumping household objects into her bodice, presumably yep. to fill it out. So she's like throwing, I think, like pots and pans in there. It's very funny. Yeah, this is a, this is a lot of fun. Um and, and you know another thing worth driving home. You mentioned how we didn't really have to to describe the plot of uh, of uh, Cinderella. One mm-hmm. of the reasons is that like this is pretty much a universal story. The basic story of Cinderella exists in various cultures. Um, you know, it's just it's it's that um, important of a trope. You know, this idea of the downtrodden uh, and the oppressed rising up. Um, in this uh, in this nature, uh, the, there's a there's an old Chinese version of this as well. Oh, um, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah, and and there are various other versions of it from just around the world. Like the, uh, it's it's interesting how how such a a, a potent fairy tale like this, uh, you you just find versions of it throughout human culture. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that does help with getting it. And and the other thing is, you mentioned earlier the the idea of like nature itself sort of being the the thing that helps Cinderella in this version, it's not like a single fairy godmother, but it's the mm-hmm. birds and it's the tree. And it's really interesting the way she's got this, uh, this pre-existing connection with the birds. Like they're just on her side from the beginning. Uh, so the wicked stepmother is having Cinderella clean up spilled lentils from the floor while the, the wicked stepsisters go off to the ball. Uh, but then a flock of birds come by to help her out. And we get a title that says Snip, and she gathers from her her apple trees the golden gown of the Hesperides, the silver coach. But when the clock strikes one, warn the bird voices, Cinderella, run. And so we see the magic tree, and Cinderella goes out to this uh, creepy, lonely hillside with a tree at the top of it. It's kind of sad, drooping tree. And the tree ends up granting her wish for a gown and a coach to take her to the ball. I like how this this was pre-code so she could stay out to one. <laughs> uh, and Cinderella's gown, I have to say this, looks sort of like a cyberpunk pressure suit like Bruce Willis <laughs> is wearing at the beginning of 12 Monkeys. Uh, I guess maybe she's going to work in the prince's virology lab, but it's very puffy and it's covered in these lines around the top that could be gas hoses. Yeah, it looks like it's it's just made out of nature, like she's coated in mycelium and stuff, you know, it's uh, it's pretty cool looking. Yeah, that's really good. So Cinderella goes to the ball. She dances with the prince. The stepsisters are very jealous. The prince falls in love with Cinderella and kisses her. But then, of course, she has to flee at midnight and the prince loses her. And then comes the search, you know, from the story based on the slipper that she drops while she's running out. And so you see this royal parade go out to find the owner of the slipper. They're putting it on people's feet. And uh, and when the prince comes to the house, Cinderella is made to hide in the cellar because the wicked stepmother does not want her to be seen by the prince. And the wicked stepsisters are trying to – they're trying to snag the prince. So one of them, yep, she chops part of her own foot off. And, and that part was seriously – hilarious like, yeah yeah yeah. again we were all just going ah when it happened and, and you know I, I know that that's a part of you know the grimmer versions of this tale uh but i guess i wasn't quite expecting it it happens so suddenly too it catches you off guard yeah she just reaches down with a knife and just chops off the front of her foot and then she's still trying to put the mutilated foot into the slipper but it fills up with blood yeah. Uh, so so this is the x-rated version <laughs> But eventually, of course, the magic birds tell the prince that Cinderella is hiding in the cellar and he goes down and he gets her out and he lifts her up and it's a happy ending. 
true love. And then there's a great moment where I don't know how else to describe this. The wicked stepmother is so mad about Cinderella getting to, to marry the prince that she literally cracks in half. Like a, mm-hmm. a fissure runs down the middle of her and she looks like a Venus flytrap opening up. That's interesting. It was interesting because it made me think of one of our recent episodes. We were talking about changes to fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one in particular in which somebody gets so mad they basically explode, um, which I so I guess it was an idea that existed sort of in the the fairy tale storytelling world at the time. And, you know, uh, though I uh, and, and perhaps it occurs in a written version of Cinderella, but uh, uh, it was it was a delightful uh, surprise here that you're having sort of Mortal Kombat type fatalities occurring in this uh, children's tale. <laughs> Oh, but on the uh, speaking of violence in uh, this animated short, uh, on the, the the foot cutting, the the first foot cutting was fabulous and shocking and and hilarious. But the second one was even better. Oh yes, where the yes. second sister goes to put on the shoe and it's not fitting either because her foot is like too plump, uh-huh. and then you see her hand come down with the knife because she's going to do the exact same thing uh-huh. and cut off part of her foot. And the prince's hand slaps it out of the way as if say, like, nope, nope, you're not doing that trick. That Not allowed against the rules. <laughs> no foot cutting. And I love the implied sneakiness with the knife. She's like, oh, yeah. I think I dropped something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me saw through the bones of my foot. So, yes, in the end, this movie is is definitely worth checking out. You can find different versions of it online, I think, that have different uh, title card situations and different levels of restoration. But I absolutely love her animation style. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. Uh, I'm really glad you uh, you turned me on to this one. Um, yeah, so if, if you want to see it, I just recommend, uh, you know, you can find it on the blog, but, uh, but just go to something like YouTube or um, – or any other streaming uh, uh, video site, and if you just do a search for Cinderella 1922, you'll this will turn up. You'll probably also turn up the Disney, the Walt Disney version as well. But but this is the one to watch. Choose your own music, though. Whatever you want, really. You want to listen to Nurse with Wound while watching it, then that's going to create a certain uh, uh, a certain feel. But you can also put on something upbeat and peppy. You know, you could put on the hair metal band Cinderella. <laughs> why yeah why not i mean that's that's ultimately the fun about this stuff do do what do what you will with the music on a silent film um i noticed in the um the psychotronic uh, book by michael weldon like he pretty much had the same advice like he was like the music often sucks uh turn it off if you don't like it um and then realize you're gonna have to put in a little bit of work uh, sometimes to enjoy these films but it's worth it All right. Are we ready to look at our second silent film today? Yeah. And again, this is one that I, th- I think a lot of people are not going to be that familiar with. I was not familiar with it till I started looking around for something to, to cover. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I wanted to cover something that that wasn't one of the classics that we're all somewhat familiar with, you know, that's not Nosferatu and so forth. And so I came across an Italian science fiction action comedy from 1921, The Mechanical Man. And it's especially worth discussing on Weird House Cinema because this is the grandfather uh, or even the great-grandfather of films like Robot Jocks and Gunhead. (laughs) Not only is it a film about robots battling each other, it is seemingly the first film about robots battling each other. Whoa. 
So the elevator pitch on this one is a remote control robot man with exceptional speed and strength is captured by criminals and forced to do evil. And this eventually culminates in an all out battle between two different robots. Now, from what I understand, the robots are definitely what drew us in to watch this. And they're a major part of the section of the film that remains in the archives. But uh, if I understand correctly, the majority of the original film was really focused less on the robots and more on sort of the exploits of the of the lead villain or antagonist, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that very much seems to be the case. This was a second film in a proposed trilogy that revolved around a a a, a cunning female criminal as opposed to the robots. The robots I I am to understand were not in the first film. Right, and this uh this criminal lady is named do you call it her it's M A D O, is it Mado or Mado? Um, I'm not sure. You know, they never say it out loud in the film. No, that's so I, um, I, I, I read it as Maddo in my, yeah. my head and kept, kept thinking of it as such. Yes, Maddo is described as, a, as an evil countess. <laughs> and the first film was a human document from 1920. Um, and there's, there's not really much I could find out about it. It's possibly, a, probably a lost film uh, in its entirety, so I don't think there's any of it that remains. Uh, but it featured many of the same characters as this film uh, does and, and perhaps deals with the same central conflict between Maddo and the Diara family, uh, which, is, uh, you know, consider, which is centered around a, a Diara patriarch who is a, a brilliant inventor. Okay, yeah. But so throughout this film, or at least the parts of it we were able to see, Mado is running around doing evil with her identity hidden behind a mask. So she's got like a thing wrapped around her face and head. And then at the end, she is unmasked and it is revealed that she is this Russian countess. Right. And she's also electrocuted at the end. Oh, yeah. uh, but I guess she wasn't supposed to die because there was a third film planned, but it just didn't come together in the post-World War One period. So I thought we might uh, just look at some of the people involved in this one, since uh, you know Cinderella did not have people in the actual film. It was animated and largely revolved around a singular individual. Uh, mm-hmm. This one had multiple people involved that are, are worth mentioning. First of all, the director was a man by the name of Andre Deed, who lived 1879 through 1940. He was a French actor and director who made a name for himself in uh, this series of comedy shorts uh, called the, the Fool's Head Comedies. And they all had titles like Fool's Head's Holiday or Fool's Head Has Lost a Needle. So, you know, just little comic adventures centered around this one ridiculous individual. Fool's Head Scared Stupid. Yeah, exactly. You know, these were the earnest movies of the day. Um <laughs> And these were apparently internationally successful during the 1900s and the 1910s. Like mm. these, these were you know big money as much as anything was big money uh, cinematically in those days. Um, they're mostly forgotten uh, today, and, and certainly Deed is, I think, mostly forgotten today by the public at large. But he was a big deal at the time. Uh, but his career was somewhat disrupted by the outbreak of World War One, in which he was conscripted into the reserves, and he may have served in the trenches. Um, it seems a little foggy on that. And afterwards, he returned to direct just a few more movies. And The Mechanical Man was his final directorial effort. Uh, he continued to act through 1938. Um, and uh, he acts in this as well. He plays a comic character named uh, uh, Sotorello, um, who pops up at one point. Uh, but uh, yeah, for the most part, like he's, he's the director of this. This is his baby, his mechanical baby. Do you know if he was the guy who was bouncing his butt up and down on the chair in that scene that I couldn't understand? 
I think he was, yes. Okay. Uh, a very, like, f- physical comedy. You know, I guess it would be like, because uh, I think he played Fool's Head in the Fool's Head movies. So it's like, you know, if, if Ernest uh, were to direct a film, like, he'd have to go in there for a cameo just to keep the crowd happy, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the parts of this movie that we were able to see that that remain. I will say I don't think this guy is quite on the Buster Keaton level as far no. as uh, physical comedy of the silent era goes. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the main star of this, again, this is ultimately about, yes, the robots, but also it's about Matto, this uh, villainess that uh, we've been d- discussing here. And uh, she is played by Valentina Frascaroli, who lived 1855 through 1957. Uh, she also played the role in the previous movie. Uh, she has 86 film credits on IMDb, including a bunch of Fool's Head shorts. According to uh, Marianne Lewinsky, writing for Il Cinema Ricciovata, she was a versatile leading lady actor of the day. She starred in both comedies, like clearly the Fool's Head movie, and, and this to a, to a large degree. But she was also in serious films as well. Uh, she was in a 1922 film about Dante. I believe it had a title that translated to The Life and Times of Dante. Hmm. And uh, she was also in an, uh, in an interesting-looking puppet-themed film, The War um, and the Dream of Momi from 1917. Now, as I learned in a, a Bruce Sterling uh, article about this, is a 2012 piece for Wired magazine. Uh, th- this was the second film in what Deed planned as a Maddo trilogy, uh, which he says explains why Maddo is given so much screen time. Uh, Maddo is the adventuress. She is a, quote, scheming white Russian exiled countess. <laughs> So you get the impression that, uh, again, the first film, I think, is entirely lost. Uh, can't find in really any details about what it was about. But she seems like she's always on the run, always escaping and falling into more schemes. Even in this film, I think she, like, escapes a couple of times, once from a prison infirmary by setting it on fire. And uh, this scene is also interesting because it, it contains some mild nudity. Um, like some side nudity, but you can't really make anything out of it given the quality of the film. Like you really have to squint to even tell that there was maybe some mild nudity in this scene. It's very European. Very, very uh, European, yes. <laughs> and also, uh, I mean, it speaks to like what this movie was trying to do. It, it, it did not have as much of a high-minded artistic purpose. This was about, I mean, this is a film in which giant robots ultimately battle each other. It it has the same sort of appeal that it's always had to us, you know, um, which, I again, I think it speaks to the certainly the creativity and the uh, you know the, the the science fiction dreams that were present uh, even in the 1920s but also the fact that like people went to the cinema to be entertained and this and this was a film that was trying to entertain people mm-hmm. now uh, again deed never got to make the, that third Maddo picture uh, but uh, you know we can only wonder what could have transpired in it you know she's again she's electrocuted at the end of this film though perhaps isn't dead so i'm guessing she would have escaped authorities again and she would have come back after the diara family uh the diara family again being the family uh of the inventor who creates giant robots so the version of this that i saw had italian intertitles and there was there were a lot that i went by and i did not have time to translate them so i don't know what they said but there was one i recognized multiple times which mm-hmm. was where it just said Corto circuito. <laughs> and, short and, circuit, of course. Short circuit. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, now, uh, as we've alluded to already, this was for a long time uh, a lost film. 
Um, and today we do not have all of it. You know, this is another sad fact about films from this period is that they are not always complete if they did survive. And in many cases, we've lost everything. There are some really notoriously lost or partially lost films. Probably the 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 gold standard being Todd Browning's 1927 uh, horror film London After Midnight, which starred Lon Chaney. I feel like even though you know, you haven't seen it. You've seen images from it. You've seen those stills of Lon Chaney and this this brilliant, uh, you know, frightening um, get up as this kind of ghoulish vampire in a tall hat. Yeah, we talked about this. I know in our invention episodes about uh, the early days of film. Like I, I think when we were discussing Alice Guy Blachet, we talked about how a huge number of her films are lost. Yeah, and it's crazy to think about this, especially with films like London After Midnight, because this was a film that grossed over a million dollars in 1927. Uh, but, you know, the last known copy of it was destroyed in a 1965 MGM vault fire. So the only thing that survives today are are images from it. And we do have a lot of images from London After Midnight, but that's what what some people have used to reconstruct the film in its entirety, just making remaking the film with still images. Now, it's a similar case with The Mechanical Man, except um, you, we were not able to we were able to bring back some of it. So the original film is thought to have been 60 to 80 minutes in length. But it was a thought completely lost for many years until reels from the Portuguese version turned up in Brazil. (laughs) And this amounts to about 26 minutes of film total. Uh, And luckily, it's footage from the later portions of the film uh, because it's a giant robot movie. You know how giant robot movies go. They're going to really have most of the special effects in the back end. It's kind of like if RoboCop 2 were a lost film and you got to reclaim half of it, which half would you get? You, which half would you want? You, you would want the later half in which the robots battle each other. I guess then you would miss most of that stuff with like the the 12-year-old drug dealer hitman or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, you would you would lose a lot of interesting stuff. And more to the point, you would lose stuff that helps you make sense of the later stuff. And uh-huh. certainly that's one of the cases with the mechanical man. Um watching the fragments that remain, it's very interesting. The robots are fabulous looking. They're these Oh man, they're just, like they—they're you know—they're obviously costumes, but they have this cool mechanical, like steampunk kind of look to them, or I guess it would be diesel punk. Um, and uh, you know, they're—they're they're sort of mean-faced and and violent, mm-hmm. and oh, it's—they're just fabulous. But you're often confused as to what's going on. You know, I—I I had to—I had to look back at um, at some write-ups to really make sense of what what was happening and how this would have. How this would have factored into the full version of the film. Well, with those limitations in mind, would you like to talk about the plot? Yeah, uh, such as it is, uh, this is the plot. Basically, a professor, uh, Diara, creates a super fast, super strong remote control robot that is going to help out humanity, but then (laughs) enter the criminal mastermind, Maddo. Um, She has the scientist killed and tries to steal the plans for the mechanical man. the criminals, she and the criminals are caught, but she escapes uh, again by setting the infirmary on, on fire, kidnaps the scientist's niece and obtains the plans. So she builds her own mechanical man, goes on a rampage with it, just sort of like I, I, I don't know that there was any like grand criminal plan. It was just sort of like 
crime in general. Like, wow, now that I have the robot, I can do crime, uh, more crime and faster crime than ever before. Uh, so that's what happens. But the scientist's brother who survives uses the original uh, mechanical man to stop her. So it all culminates in a big robot battle inside an opera house that ultimately destroys the opera house. Yes. Now, I was making a few notes as I was watching this. One is that I really liked Maddo's escape from prison or the, the hospital or wherever she is, where, uh, mm-hmm. because she it's a multi-stage procedure where she injects something and fakes out the orderlies and then starts a mm-hmm. fire and then gets out. It's uh, it's it's a good sequence. And uh, but beyond that, as I was saying earlier, you know, I tried my best, but there were some scenes where I had no idea what's going on on screen. Uh, so yeah. the main thing I, I wanted to ask about is what's going on with the dude, possibly the director frantically bouncing on the armchair. Could could you tell? I could not tell. This was this was a scene that I again I'd have to chalk up to maybe being uh, just a wink for the audience that involves um, like a, a beloved comic actor who also directed the film. Kind of a cameo, maybe that means nothing to um, to modern viewers. It's uh, the it's the 1921 version of Jim Carrey going all righty then. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Uh, yeah, it would be it would be like if uh, if Jim Carrey directed a robot movie, but also showed up and did one of his old bits just in the middle of it. You know that. But the other thing about you know confusing moments in this film, uh, you know, we can chalk a lot of it up to the fragmentary nature of what remains. Uh, but but you know, we can also point to possible shortfalls in the state of the medium at the time, or even filmmaker capability, because ultimately, Deed would not will not be the last film director to craft an incoherent action picture or to struggle transitioning from short form laughs to longer form uh, dramatic storytelling. So I don't know; it's hard hard to tell exactly where all the blame levels out. Yeah. The, the, so there's some of that disconnect in movies that we've looked at. Or you remember mm-hmm. with Dr. X, there was this strange mixture of creepiness and comedy and not the kind of comedy that usually goes along with creepiness in movies today. A, a very wet kind of slapstick, uh, goofy, goobery comedy alongside yeah. the synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh. Yes. <laughs> but I will also say, uh, to give the director credit here, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a number of limitations. We are dealing with time distance. This was a long time ago. Things just, uh, you know, cinema felt different then. We were dealing with a language barrier. We were not watching this in translation. This was in a language we don't speak. And we we're dealing with and in like watching only a fragmentary part of the second half of a silent film. So, yeah, so so there's a lot of stuff getting in the way of us understanding. Yeah, absolutely. But but I'm so, I'm glad that, that this much of it has survived because yeah. you know especially the scenes where well yes when the robots are battling each other it's awesome but there all the scenes of robot mischief are just excellent. Oh yes, <laughs> yes I love so there's one part with a cocktail party where they're playing mm-hmm. some kind of Marco Polo type game. They tie a napkin around a man's face and they spin him around and he's chasing all these women in the, in the party room. And then a giant uh, mecha man just bursts through the window and is like, I am here to cause panic. And he puts a dude inside a wardrobe, carries mm-hmm. him up to the roof of a castle. And I think yeah. he's going to throw him off the castle tower. Yeah. But then I guess the guy gets away and climbs he kind of like falls out of it and then repels down the tower it's yeah. elaborate and, and ridiculous yeah there's uh, also the wonderful scene where it's uh, like a dinner party and I, I had to 
I had to rely on Sterling's write-up and Wired to make sense of what was happening. But, uh, I mean, fully happening. Because apparently the idea is the robot has shown up, uh, controlled by Maddo, uh, at this um, at this party. And it's, but it's pretending to be a person in a robot costume. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so they're all like, oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful costume. Come on in, have some champagne. And so it's like calling for champagne and having a lady sit on its lap and then yes. things get out of hand. Yes. The robot sexually harasses a female party goer and then the, the woman's husband gets mad at the robot and punches it. And mm-hmm. then he, they, he pulls out a pistol to duel the robot and the robot crushes him. Yeah, there, there's more than one scene in which somebody pulls out a pistol and fires a bunch of shots uh, point blank into the robot to no avail. And then the robot just like swats them. So there's chaos at the opera. But then in the midst of all this, you end up with a Mecha Man versus Mecha Man uh, because there's I think, as you already said this, but the dead scientist's brother makes his own Mecha Man. And or he, he uses should... the original, I think, to battle the oh, new okay. one that the that the criminals have made. Oh, Either okay. way, you end up in the same place. Good robot versus bad robot. Um, you know, a time-tested formula. Right, but they're having to be controlled. Like, Maddo is actively controlling the robot in real time by, like, uh, by like turning wheels and still, like, operating yeah. steam vents and things. This is going to get a very low score on, on uh, intuitive controls. But the other thing that I thought was interesting was as Mado controls her Mecha Man during the duel, unless I'm misunderstanding, it looks like she's watching the duel live on some kind of TV screen as she controls her robot fighter. And this was in 1921. There was no such thing as CCTV at this time. Right. Yeah. This was com- a complete glimpse into the future. Uh, Sterling wrote that at the, the 22 minute, 29 second uh, mark, quote, Maddo watches the mechanisms battling through a flat wall mounted remote surveillance televisor screen. So, I mean, that's that's awesome. I mean, th- this is a great just this is a great example of early science fiction in that it mm-hmm. gets something phenomenally right while also, you know, it, it maybe doesn't properly predict the way that controls will work in the future for things like this. You know, it's a wonderful mashup of of actually pretty spot on uh, digital technology to come and then also a reliance on very mechanical control systems. Another thing that's interesting is that the screen she's watching things play out on is not from the point of view of the robot. Right. So what's sending the image? <laughs> Yeah, it would have to be like a robotic drone that is also uh-huh. part of the operation that is not presented in the film. I don't know, something of that nature. Yeah. Or maybe it's a telescope. I mean, there's so many different directions you could go in. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, given the nature of the film, I guess they don't really have to explain it. They just. But it is interesting, too, that they didn't explain it. There's so many films I can think of where the film is at pains to really elaborate and describe to the audience what sort of technology is is being used and how it works and what the rules are. And yet this this film is rolling out, um, you know, to your point, CCTV on a flat screen, and they don't seem to have to explain it at all, unless it's yeah. explained in the lost portion of the film, of course. Well, it's funny because it's a concept that is, it's immediately apparent what, you know, what its function is. Like you, Yeah, it probably yeah. comes back to the Videodrome quote, right? Yeah. yeah. She is doing what you were doing right now and watching this screen. Uh, so in, in a way, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. The televisor screen is the retina of the mind's eye. <laughs> Whatever robots appear on it emerges raw experience. <laughs> 
Um, let's see other things to mention about this film. Uh, I would say that the special effects are, are pretty cool. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, you know, in addition to robots like breaking through gates and pulling out safes and whatnot, uh, there's a scene where a speeding robot chases after, I believe it's a car, uh, and tears, you know, it, it, so it's, it's, it creates this this wonderful illusion that you don't you don't instantly think of as being even possible at the time in filmmaking, and yet they're they're pulling it off. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that was surprising about this is, on one hand, you just don't expect to see a giant robot battle in a film from the 1920s, but uh, mech fiction has has basically been around had been around for decades at this point, with uh, such titles as The Steam Man of the Prairies by Edward S. Ellis from 1868, or uh, Jules Verne's The Steam House from 1880. Um, so again, it's just neat and worth remembering that people in the 1920s were also really into cool sci-fi concepts, many of which still enthrall us today and, you know, are still going to we keep making them. We're not going to stop making giant robot battle movies. Uh, there's just something about them that is wonderful. You know, there's the the idea of, you know, the small made large, of uh, you know, things that are echoes of the human form or animal form and mechanical uh, construction battling each other. And then also we have to consider that this film came out after World War One, mm-hmm. and that Deed himself was apparently witness to the European conflict, uh, perhaps directly. So despite the fact that this is totally not a, a serious film, that it you know has a very farcical feel to it, uh, it it still may have something to say, no matter how shallow, about the new age of warfare in which machines like tanks and warplanes have just utterly changed the landscape of war. I think it was around the same time that we talked on Invention about uh, remote-controlled robots as something that people were, uh, uh, were, were claiming to have invented at this time, whether mm-hmm. or not they were actually very effective. Yeah. I don't recall the details on that, but, uh, but yeah, yeah but, but certainly it's, it's something that it's an idea that's been knocking around the human imagination for, for quite some time. So, it, you know, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise to see it in, in the 1920s. But I guess on some level, I feel like I have been kind of reprogrammed to think of the 1950s as the birth period of the sci-fi robot, you know, because mm-hmm. maybe in part because of there being a lot of images from that time period and, you know, um, I, I, if, if you had to like – if you were to quiz me before this and say when was the first sci-fi robot, I might just instantly think to the 50s even though there are definitely examples from you know, prior to that decade. And, you know, here is one of the prime ones right here. By the way, I think that thing I was just talking about is in our episodes of Invention on the Death Ray if you want to look at oh, that Oh, OK. But yes, I, I agree with you uh, on, on all that about fiction. I mean, it, it's going to be robot jocks forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just, we just keep doing it. Um, and and I, I will keep watching them, apparently, uh, no matter what era they're from. All right, well, I hope this was a lot of fun for everybody. Maybe we introduced you to a couple of new uh, silent shorts that you weren't familiar with. Uh, maybe you did know of these uh, films already and would like to share your uh, take on them. Uh, certainly go out, watch them, and let us know. Uh, also, let us know if you like this kind of format, because obviously there are a lot of short films out there. It, it might be kind of neat to do this from time to time. Um, like maybe, you know, to come back to Cronenberg, maybe we do one where we look at a couple of short films, early films from David Cronenberg. Uh, crack those open. Um, you know, uh, tackling things that, you know, otherwise wouldn't make for a full episode of Weird House. 
I don't know about that one in particular, but in general, I'm game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Uh, So, yes, Weird House Cinema, if you want to catch other episodes, this airs every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. It is a place for us to step away from the science for a little bit and talk more about just a weird movie or, in this case, movies. Uh, But as you can see, we often find ways to tie it into other pieces of content that we've put out. Um, And, oh, yeah, and, of course, we'll be back next week. And I'm not going to tell you what the film's going to be, but I will say it is another Florida movie, so be prepared. Cue up that Lion King song. (laughs) Uh, Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 